Did Faye Dunaway leave her reading glasses at home? Why would anyone walk around Broadchurch alone? Previously on Answer Me This, 347. People gonna die? We're all gonna laugh at you. It's a bomb. America's next top model. (laughs) (laughs) The winner of Pop Idol 2007 is... I don't remember that episode of Answer Me This being that exciting. Uh, It was a big one, 347. It was, yeah. Uh, Mainly because we were talking about vampire bats and how they were named after literary vampires. In this world, that's a cliffhanger. And Ollie, you speculated that there were other creatures named after contemporary literature, such as Harry Potter. Yeah, that's right. I said, I wonder whether there's anything in the contemporary literary canon that is so well known that Mm. you could name a a new species of animal after it and we both speculate i can't remember who said but we both speculated yeah probably harry potter is that famous correct ollie correct bad medicine uh says have you seen the sorting hat spider i have now personally i'm not convinced it looks like the sorting hat but it doesn't look like a spider, so that's nice. It actually does look a bit like the sorting hat bit, from Harry Potter. The picture that I'm seeing, it looks a bit like um, a 1970s pottery pigeon that's slightly abstract that my parents have as an ornament. That's not a literary reference, though. You can see why they went with the Rowley. I, I can, I can. But I think it's a little tenuous to think it looks like the sorting hat. It's sort of a cone that is bent at the, the pointy bit. I guess that is quite like the sorting hat, isn't it? But it doesn't have a brim. Point is, if you're an Indian spider biologist, I think this is probably a good way to broaden your media coverage. You know, you stumble across a new species, it happens to look a bit like something from the most famous children's book of the last century. Good thing for them. And also maybe they thought, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them is recently out. Maybe we'll get some press out of this. Yeah, yeah. Actually, although I should say it's not actually officially, by the way, called the Sorting Hat Spider. It is called the... Irio Vixia Gryffindori. Gryffindori. So it's got its name from Godric Gryffindor, the owner of the sorting hat. Ten points to Gryffindor. But it's got a classy Latinate uh, transliteration of that. Well, it is not the only Harry Potter beast. Sean says they've named a crab after a combo of Harry Potter characters. Now, perhaps you can explain this. It's a rather beautiful white crab. With a baleful expression, although maybe that is common to crabs' That's expressions. That's a pap shot. It's <laughs> <laughs> an upshell shot. <laughs> but the the crab that you're referring to is called the Harry Plax. Now, I've seen people say, oh, so they've named it after Harry Potter. But actually, the Harry bit is actually named after Harry Conley, who was the biologist who discovered it, apparently. It's the Harry Plax Severus. So it's named after both Harry and severus snape but it isn't because it's named after harry conley so they've okay so the severus is the snape reference that's the only harry potter reference it just happened it's a coincidence that the guy who discovered it is also called harry yes it is but again you don't get much uh, media attention if you go around discovering crabs for a living so you might as well capitalize on it <laughs> yes yeah, harry potter crab you just haven't made the cultural impact if you're a crab discoverer if until you've been portrayed by daniel radcliffe in eight films you just you're just tailing behind you're a secondary harry when it comes to the harry plaque severus Crab Discoverer, the dating app no one wants to join. Uh, I also have been researching into... Uh, it's appropriate because crabs can only move right and left. So when you're swiping it, you'd see it's sort of got Good point, you? Martin. Yeah. Lovely, lovely job. Well um, done, Martin. That's right, yes. Good to have you here. <laughs> I've also discovered that Michael Crichton had a dinosaur named after him. Oh, did he? In tribute to Jurassic Park, I guess. I presume, not Westworld. The Crichtonsaurus. And what is it? Is it a dinosaur that was brought back to life? 
No, but it is a dinosaur that's been discovered post-Jurassic Park, therefore I suppose more likely to be brought back to life. I guess they know more about the DNA from when they discovered it. In order to reanimate dinosaurs, they need the DNA of a living creature now mm. um, with which they can splice. So uh, you remember a couple of weeks ago, woolly mammoths were in the news because they were like, we're a couple of years away from producing a woolly mammoth embryo because the Asian elephant is a fairly close relative of the woolly mammoth. However, then when you looked at the story, it was a bit more like, well, it'll be more like an elephant with some woolly mammoth characteristics. Right. It's just it's a, a hairy slight, elephant. A slightly hairy elephant. But in the articles I read about that, they were saying the reason we can do this is because the Asian elephant exists so you can get its DNA and uh, mess around with it. Whereas dinosaurs, that's a lot more challenging given that what, what is there that's related to a dinosaur? Birds and hedgehogs. Well, lizards, reptiles, stuff like that. Not close enough. Really not close enough at mm. all. I quite like the idea of producing little mi- mini dinosaurs though. Adorable. Wouldn't it be great? Better than Jurassic Park. Not better. Less dramatic. Different. Different. Yeah. But better for humanity, as in fewer people would die probably, if you just had like a petting zoo where things got out of control. You know, it's only because they went as far as the T-Rex that things were so bad. I like the idea that the film could be called Jurassic Petting Zoo. <laughs> I think you're wrong, Ollie, because how big were the gremlins? About a foot high? Good and point. they wiped mm. out a town. That's right, And yes. they would have they gone further if they hadn't been fucking around in the bar. We've got a question from Maya from London who says, I've just made a dessert I've never made before containing jelly, an ingredient I've not eaten for circa 20 years. Wow, I wonder what convinced you suddenly to take a step into the unknown and a step into the past yeah. but it's trifle she don't use jelly <laughs> she don't use cheese she uses other wobbly things <laughs> um, uh, she says i soon discovered that i'd made too much of said jelly still in its liquid form for my pudding and i intended to throw the rest away wow however as i stood stranded in my kitchen between the sink and the bin I was a trifle concerned. <laughs> she's put trifle in all oh. caps. She, she knows what she she's doing. She was a trifle. It's a pun. Good woman. Uh, if I disposed of said jelly in its liquid form by pouring it down the sink, would my pipes become a horrible jelly-y mess in these cold winter months? I decided to be prudent and store the rest of the jelly in the fridge, wait for it to set, and then dispose of it in the bin with a clear conscience. Heaven forfend I eat it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, Helen, answer me this. If my dessert is a success... She's self-doubting, but I think that's cute. I wish she'd followed up with telling us whether it was or not. Uh, And I decide to make jelly again. Can I pour it down the sink in its liquid form, or will my plumbing be destroyed forever? Uh, Not forever, but it can really mess up your plumbing. Can it? Yeah. They they advise not putting any gelatine products down your pipes. And also there are some liquid medicines that you shouldn't put down there, because some of them are designed to turn into a kind of hard gel once they're in you. I think that slows down the absorption. And so once they're in your pipes, that can also happen. Then you've got a blockage. So if you have poured jelly down your sink you can pour a lot of boiling water down there to uh, melt it and flush it through. I suppose what you could do is crack open your pipes and have a pipe-shaped jelly for your pudding. <laughs> It'd be full of, full of old tea leaves and stuff. So, as you know, I think Jeopardy in baking is bullshit, but millions of people disagree with me. Why isn't there a great British jelly off? Millions of people are prepared to wait and see whether someone's dough has risen. Why haven't they done a jelly-based competition? Oh, my word. I am so into the the Great British Pottery Throwdown at the moment. If you need a show, listeners, to soothe your frazzled soul in these difficult times... This is the show because it is a bunch of people making pottery, which takes ages. And also... so good. I mean, with Bake Off now, you know 
Um, a bit like this is what happened with the singing competitions, isn't it? You know that even if you don't win, there's a chance you can become a TV chef or a writer for the Times or get a cookbook. You could be the potter for the Times. Exactly. What possible prize is there in winning the pottery, apart from you say you got to win the pottery? Well, you might get to take some of your cups home. Someone who comes runner-up in the Great British Pottery Throwdown is not going to be able to live off that, is my guess. I think even current famous potters might struggle to generate a significant income. I do like the, the idea, though, that if whoever wins, they get taken aside by Sony and given a development data sphere. <laughs> <laughs> if, like, BMG got a pottery arm, I don't know. Here's 200 grand. Go and make the best sugar bowl you can. <laughs> <laughs> what is the best thing about this show, though, is the male judge, the Paul Hollywood figure. Mm. He is so moved by the beauty of some <laughs> of the pots that he cries several times an episode. Right, OK. It's a joy. Yeah, it just takes your mind off the stuff that otherwise makes people cry in the world. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Are you so, it's so rare that you see that display on primetime TV, a man crying because a glaze is fantastic. Uh, here's a question from Nikki, who says, I've been listening to your podcast for a while now, okay. and as I am a soldier in the army, I'm away from home more often than not. Wow. Uh, I want you to know you've brought a feeling of home and comfort to me via your podcast for as long as I can remember, so thank you. Aww. It's exciting, isn't it, to think we're entertaining the troops, Helen, with a new Jim Davidson? I was going to say Bob Hope. Or Vera Lynn. Why did you have to go and ruin it with Jim Davidson? <laughs> that is the most contemporary example. Uh, recently, says Nikki, I've seen this hype around using charcoal to whiten teeth, and I'm considering trying it myself. Though I am always on the lookout for a teeth whitening fad, as I spent a lot of last year oil pulling with coconut oil to try and improve the colour of my teeth, mm. I unfortunately saw no result there. It's not scientifically proven. So, Helen, answer me this. Am I just being a sucker for a trend, or is there some truth behind what these beauty articles are trying to sell me? Well, kind of both. You are a sucker for a trend, but the truth in what they're trying to sell you is that charcoal and specifically activated charcoal. This won't work with barbecue charcoal ah. or drawing charcoal. Um, activated charcoal has been purified uh, for health use. Is it still black, though? Yes, very much so. So whoever first thought that you should try putting it anywhere near your face, Al Jolson? Well, they, they used to, they used to um, clean teeth with, with black powders uh, before they? toothpaste, yeah. What? I mean, it is counterintuitive, no? Well, what happens is charcoal is attracted to tannins... The charcoal uh, will effectively stick to a tannin. If you've been drinking wine or tea, your teeth might get a bit discoloured. Oh. And so it'll get rid of that. But if your teeth were already permanently discoloured, it won't bleach them. Mm. And it may stain them more. So you might end up with worse tooth discoloration than you had at the start. I was thinking about um, the colouring of stain vanishes uh, the other day, which you isn't something I think about very much. Such an interesting interior um, life. It, specifically, this was on Valentine's Day. <laughs> Um, I suppose you do want to know that you've got a path for stain removal after Valentine's Day. <laughs> no, what happened is I opened a good bottle of wine. Ooh. It's like, hey, it's one of those special evenings. I think it was probably like a £25 bottle that someone maybe Ooh. gave us when our son was born. It's posh. But maybe like a seven, eight-year-old bottle of wine. Mm -hmm. So I opened it, I let it breathe, all that shit. Wow. And then on my way to show my wife the uh, cake that I bought her from Selfridges Food Hall, I was trying to be classy. That was very nice. I managed to knock the bottle of red of wine all over the carpet, which ended up with her screaming and hitting me. Oh. Um, so anyway, at that point, I had to get the vanish out. Mm. And I remember thinking, it's interesting that it's a white, creamy product. Because By interesting, you just mean <laughs> it is a white, creamy product. It's the most notable thing in my brain at the moment, that this is a white, creamy product. And yet I wonder whether it really needs to be. Like, probably, mm -hmm. chemically, this could be blue or green. But they 
they'd make it white, wouldn't they? So that as a consumer, you're like, oh yeah, but I use this to make things white, therefore it should look white. See, I wonder if charcoal actually could do the same thing for my white carpet, but then I wouldn't buy that. I mean, you'd definitely get <laughs> black carpet yeah. if you rub charcoal into <laughs> well, it. That's what I'm asking. So hmm. did you manage to get the stain out of your relationship and the carpet? Uh, no. Oh. I, I've, I've damaged our carpet forever. Oh, no. And your own Valentine's Day. And reduced Day. my own sexual prowess in oh. the process. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. But to return to the charcoal, yes. uh, like so many of these folk remedies that we mentioned on the show, like apple cider vinegar, it's not necessarily a hard no so much as there isn't really a big body of research and most of the evidence is anecdotal. I'm pleased that there isn't a wide body of research on that because uh, I'd rather my scientists were doing other things. But dentists do say... It can abrade your teeth and therefore it's best to avoid it. Because what people do is they split open these capsules of activated charcoal. It can just really erode your teeth because it's gritty. When did the word activated become so bandied around? Was it like activated garlic or... Yeah, Whole Foods is like activated kale crisps. What does that mean? Because no one wants lazy passive kale crisps. No one (laughs) wants to eat a raw vegetable if they're buying a processed food. So you assume that it's been through some sort of process. Come on, parsnip, (laughs) self-actualise. If you got a question... An email question to answer me at this podcast at googlemail.com. 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 Here's a question from a lady called Peter which I'm not going to comment on because uh, I have met women called Peter before. It's a thing. Yeah, it's not a big deal. It's just Why not, are you making it into a big deal? Well, because it's not a British thing and I know that uh, old me before he'd met women called Peter would be like, Pfft, but it's a thing. Is that a Danish name? I don't know, P-E-T-A, like the People's Ethical Treatment of Animals charity. Yeah. The, the first time I was aware of the name Peter as a female name was uh, the actress who played, I think, the third incarnation of Cody Willis on Neighbours. Right. P-E-T-A. Well, it, it's just as well that you make reference to the uh, greatest Australian cultural artefact of all time because uh, this is a question <laughs> from Down Under. Uh, she says, My husband and I recently tree-changed from a shitty two-bedroom Sydney flat to our dream country home in the Hunter Valley, Australia. I don't know what tree-changed means, I've never you? heard it used before as a verb either. Anyway, she means we've moved house, basically. We've, we've upsticks. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've, we've tree-changed. Yeah. Whilst the first few months went by in a sublime haze of farm animals, mountain sunsets, evening kangaroo watching and summertime skinny dipping, we have encountered our first bump in the road. Our nearest neighbour who lives half a mile up the lane should be there for one another (laughs) knocked on our door a few weeks ago, shotgun in hand, blimey, uh, to let us know he would be doing a spot of roo shooting. Yep, and not to panic when we heard close-range gunfire over our evening meals. <laughs> so, the screams of kangaroos. So easy not to panic when you hear a gun firing. <laughs> as we thought this was a one-off event, we didn't object, uh, so as to avoid creating friction amongst our new neighbours. Okay. Also, I can imagine, you know, however you feel about kangaroo culling, the, the very presence of a gun... It's quite exotic, isn't it? It's quite country if you've moved from Sydney and you you want something different. Or the very presence of a gun might just make you agree to whatever the person holding the gun (laughs) is saying. Uh, However, continues Peter, this spot of shooting has turned into a twice-weekly event. Mm. We now find ourselves covered in a malodorous curtain of decaying national emblem flesh Uh. in the 40-degree Australian summer. Oh, 
Oh no. And how wasteful because you can eat kangaroo. I was just reading a historical cookbook today that was uh, recommending recipes to cook kangaroo with. That reminds me, I still haven't given you your Christmas present, <sighs> which is a seven volume historical cookbook. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I bought it from Oxfam. It's thank good. You. You'll like it. You don't have to keep it, but it's seven volumes, so I can't bring you it to you unless to... I'm driving to you. Could you hang on to it until we've got a home? <laughs> well, it's in my garage at the moment, but it's got the old cat litter box on top of it, so I'm a bit worried oh. now it smells of damp and cat shit. Still, you'll like it one day. Wait, I'll, I'll like it more if it didn't smell of cat shit. Yeah, yeah, I know. But if it's... it does smell of cat shit, just pretend you never bought it. Yeah, okay, fine. Mm-hmm. I've now committed it to record. Yep. Anyway. But thank you for the thoughts. No, no, I think you'll like it. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> yes, you were reading a historical cookbook. Yeah, and it has many kangaroo recipes, so it seems a shame to waste the meat. It's muscular, so it's probably quite good. Peter continues. Helen, answer me this. Do we confront this gun-toting neighbour and politely request a reprieve? Or... I feel like there's more than two options here, but she's only given us two. Mm-hmm. Do we need to tolerate the tangy aroma of rotting national treasures and avoid confrontation in the interest of self-preservation? P.S. His gun is obscenely large. Of course it is. Mm. What is he overcompensating for? <laughs> I think we all know. Uh, I think without fear of getting shot, because just because he has a gun doesn't mean he wants to uh, fire it into you. He, d- he did come and ask if it was okay. Exactly. that He didn't have to. I think you could say... We're having a bit of a problem with these putrescing kangaroos mm. that you've killed. Could you pick them up once you've done it and dispose of them responsibly? I'm not sure that someone who uses the term roo shooting would respond well to the term putrescing. Translate it into your Hunter Valley vernacular, Peter. Stinks around here, mate. <laughs> Clean up your shit. Something like that. <laughs> In some parts of Australia, there are apparently sort of plague proportions of kangaroos. Um, you read some of the animal rights blogs, which are named after you, Peter, um, and, and they say... <laughs> That, um, you know, in other parts of Australia, there's no issue at all. And, and when you kill a kangaroo, you also end up killing the joey as well because the joey needs to suckle off the mother for six months. Then you bash its head in. It's all very horrible. Ooh. But it, it's quite hard to know, because I don't know the kangaroo population of where you live, whether actually the farmer is just doing what needs to be done. Although the smell might not be very nice, maybe it is better than having kangaroos sort of romping around eating all the grasslands. doesn't say he's a farmer, so he could just be a hobbyist. You're not allowed in Australia to have a gun going around killing uh, kangaroos for the hunt. Are you not? So he's he's breaking the law if he's not a farmer. Okay, so maybe you need to research whether or not he's a farmer and then call the police, if not? Yeah, although, I mean, the, the truth is, even though you have to have a permit to be able to do it, uh, no one polices that because it happens at night. So even mm-hmm. if he was a farmer and he had the right to have the gun and he had the right to cull kangaroos, no one's actually seeing how he's doing it because it's midnight or whatever. Okay, but if he is not supposed to be killing the kangaroos... Then you've then got something, you've got you've material. Got, you've got material, so you can say, if you're going to do this thing, clean up afterwards. And if he does have the right to kill the kangaroos, you would probably think he doesn't want rotten kangaroos on his land. So I think you could still make the case that everyone is suffering because of the rotten kangaroos. Yeah. But it it is difficult, isn't it? I mean, disputes with neighbours are are the thing you legendarily want to avoid. But this neighbour is at least half a mile up the road. And so it's not like you have to see them all the time and he can be making a lot of noise on the other side of your party wall. That's true. But it might be, for example, that the access road is, uh, you know, essentially going past his house. Yeah, or your sewer is going through there and he punctures it. So a cursory search suggests um, that there, there is a large, large number of kangaroos in Hunter Valley. Uh, there's an article here from 2015. Hunters, hunter farmers face kangaroo nightmare. Oh, there we go. Another one um, from more more recently, last year. Woman's breast implants ruptured in kangaroo attack. Oh. So um, I think he's doing women's service. protecting other women's tits, Peter. Yeah, thanks, Peter. By enduring the smell. 
there's got to be a way to protect the tits and not have the smell. Hashtag protect the tits. <laughs> that sounds like the most handsome of this hashtag ever. Um, I'm trying to find a link to the intermission, but there isn't one. Uh, take a break from shooting stuff to listen to a clip from an old episode of Answer Me This. How about that? Fine, that'll do. Uh, all of our old episodes are available on our special website, answermethisstore.com uh, they're also available on iTunes and Amazon but if you buy them from our special bespoke website then we get more of the money so do do that if you can but just to make the counter argument could be a little more difficult to get onto your iPad yes or phone. if you're if you're a committed Apple user then it is easier to buy it from iTunes we get that you're not a bad person you just want convenience it just depends whether your commitment is greater to us or to your Apple device <laughs> yeah. that is the decision you have to make anyway point I'm is I'm an Apple device lots of our old stuff is, is available on the internet uh, and uh, what we do in every episode of this is we uh, play you some of it uh, what are we playing this this time Helen for today's intermission here is a clip of answer me this episode 196. Here's a question from Alex from Birmingham who says, Well, he answer me this. Did one of the members of the 90s boy band 911... <laughs> My specialist area already. ...have a glass eye? Wow. <laughs> I think it was the one called Jimmy. I swear I remember reading it in one of my younger sister's Smash Hits magazines, but I can't find proof of it anywhere, and I have been looking for 15 years. <laughs> that is niche. You could probably track down the members of 911 and ask them directly. They're probably doing plumbing or something now. Well, actually, I did Google Jimmy Constable from 911. He is in price category C on a corporate entertainment website, uh, which means you can book him uh, for between 500 and five grand a night. I don't mean to be rude, Jimmy, if you're listening, but I imagine he's more at the 500 pound end of the market there. For as long as abs from five is available, <laughs> you're never going to get booked. <laughs> exactly. We are still getting far more hang-ups on our voicemail than we used to when Skype allowed us to have a, a, a voicemail message. They don't think about the little guy, do they? And we're probably literally no. the only people in the world that are that bothered that Skype doesn't let you have a voicemail anymore. Yeah. But, but it used to be really helpful because people would know that they'd called the podcast. Exactly. And uh, and they would know that you have to say your name before you ask a question. Yeah. And if they had been uh, pranked and given our number instead of a legit number, they would know that uh, something had gone awry. So we just really want you to know that if you Skype answer me this, or if you call the following number... 02081235877 And that is how you get your voice onto this show. Although you can voice memo us these days. You can just send us a voice memo with your question. It's fine. fine. Yeah. Hello, Ollie. Answer me this. When did Fruit Machine first enter public houses and why are they fruit? The 1960s. Oh. And why fruit is more interesting than when. Okay, is there a particular reason why in the 1960s pubs suddenly got into the fruit machine game? Yes. It's about healthy eating. <laughs> <laughs> Have a pint, why not eat a little bowl of cherries? Rationing's been over for a few years now. Let's make merry with our fruit. <laughs> in the 1800s. In America, where else? Mm-hmm. Oh, when, so when you said the 60s, you didn't mean the swinging 60s. <laughs> no, it was the 1960s. Okay. I'm just taking you back. Right, you really are. Yeah, we're all nostalgic for, for that period in the, in the 19th century. I'm not, because I'm a woman, and uh, my rights were not great then. Uh, you probably wouldn't have had a good time in a saloon, I'll be honest. <laughs> yeah, um, not with my booze allergy, no. Um, but anyway, in the saloons at that time... Mm-hmm. A couple of guys invented uh, the one-armed bandit, you know, the, the yep. mechanical pre-electric slot machine. The ones where you pull a lever and things move. Yes, and, and they based that around card symbols because that's what they were all playing poker and blackjack. Oh. 
So originally, uh, all it was is you pulled a lever and then it gave you some symbols like Jack, Diamond, King, Ace, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then that would translate into you winning a particular kind of prize. Mm -hmm. But it didn't actually dispense the prize because that was too advanced. It It just displayed a different randomised card. And then if you won, it gave you some cherries. You're close. (laughs) Am I? Yeah. But you're jumping ahead by some time. Can I I ask a question? So it was the, the same thing. You'd have three spinny things and you have to get the same... You, no, you wouldn't necessarily image. have to get the same ones. You just—it was a way of uh, randomly producing a hand. Oh, so okay. instead of a dealer right. giving you right. a hand, the machine gave you a hand, and they based right. a game around it. So it's like playing cards by yourself. Yeah, exactly. So just you and your robot card buddy. Yeah. So that was the original incarnation of the slot machine. Mm-hmm. But the guy who sort of turned it into—and and I'll get onto the fruit bit in a minute—but the guy who sort of turned slot machines into a real thing was a guy called Charles Fay from California. He simplified the machine into the three reels that we know now, mm-hmm. and he put the symbols on it, and the symbols did correspond to what you would win. So the cherries and the melons was you would actually win uh, fruit-flavoured chewing gum corresponding to those flavours. Oh, not oh. a whole melon. Not a whole melon. Oh. <laughs> but it's interesting, isn't it, that even in the 1800s, American chewing gum had cool flavours, and we still only have mint. That's not true. We have juicy fruit. Fucking hell. <laughs> What's so, that about? So how did it work then? So you, you pulled the lever, you got your three things. Yes. Was there literally someone stood behind you going, oh, I'll have some chewing gum? Yeah, well, just the same as at a casino now, where you'd, you'd say, well, I've got this receipt that says I've won £100, can I have my £100 piece? You'd have to go to the teller but it wouldn't have printed out a piece of no, paper with no the... no but it was a novelty so everyone was crowded around it and okay watching it. So, so you know there'd be no mystery you about couldn't fake it had. exactly yeah okay um so anyway that's what that was and actually the bar symbol which you still see in slot machines now was there it wasn't trademarked because it was the 1800s uh-huh. but that was an early logo of the gum company that you'd win so oh. it's a really weird thing that that's become a thing that still says bar but it's, it might as well be like the dairy milk logo that's what it is wow. effectively anyway Fast forward like 100 years and slot machines have become a big deal in America and they want to import them to Britain. But it's the 1960s. And in the 1960s, casino gambling was only permitted in casinos. Uh, that was later tragically reversed by Gordon Brown, uh, and now you can do casino gaming on the high street. But, Literally uh, on the street, just on the pavement. Just, you get your roulette wheel out and just have at it. Well, you know, the, the fixed odds betting terminals in all the bookies, but uh, yeah, that, that's another story, kids, for another shit day of gambling addiction. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, in the 1960s, you couldn't gamble in a pub. It wasn't allowed. Mm-hmm. But you could play a game with skill. You had to prove mm. an element of skill. This is the same weird thinking that led until very recently to Andy Peters on breakfast television giving you a multiple choice question to win the quiz when clearly everyone knew that the answer was Shakespeare. Because what skill is there in a fruit machine except for pulling a lever and then waiting for something uncontrollable by you to happen? Well, thanks to Trevor Carter, co-founder of Carfield Engineers Limited, Helen, there's the nudge button. Sorry to have Mm. underestimated you, Trevor Carter. (laughs) Thus, therefore, apparently... Mm-hmm. making it a game of skill. It was no longer just chance, because it's chance plus whether or not you nudged at the right time that oh, makes you win. Okay. It's bullshit, but it's just enough skill for them to say it's not gambling. Huh. So that's how we ended up with the fruit machine. So that the Because in America, uh, they still don't really have fruit machines as such. They have slots, and some of them have fruit on. But actually, they, like, if you go to Vegas, there's like pictures of Michael Jackson and stuff like that on it. But in Britain, still traditionally, we like the fruit-based ones, even if uh, it's automatically generated and it's not a real reel under there at all. But also, our fruit machines will still have the Liberty Bell on, which yes. isn't our bell. It's America's bell. Yes, so that, again, is a reference to Charles Fay's company. That was called Liberty Bell. 
So again, that's a bit of branding from a company that ceased to exist hundreds of years ago. Did you win a bell? I don't know. Maybe you won your liberty. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really popular in prison with these, these games. So that should be Big Ben in a British fruit machine. It should, yeah. We mm. d- I don't know, we don't seem to have the innovatory skill around it. I think the aspect it. ratio of Big Ben is wrong, isn't it? It looked very skinny on those little pictures. Technically, Martin, as any boring pedant will tell you, Big Ben is just the bell and not the tower. Correct. But no one would recognise it if it was just the picture of the bell. Well, that's the problem, isn't it? Maybe Big, it is. That's why Big Ben needs the tower, and that's why the tower is generally called Big Ben, because then people know what you're talking about. Yeah. Maybe you could have um, a fruit machine that instead of fruit had different British symbols, so you could have the bell of Big Ben, you could have Nelson's Column, <laughs> you could have the Angel of the North, and um, York London Minster. Or, or uh, sweet treats that aren't fruit-flavoured chewing gum that are more British somehow. Mm. Spotted dick, jam roly-poly. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> they, all be... look, they all just look beige and we... they're covered in custard. And it's, <laughs> you, you never know whether you've won because the delineation is so subtle. Rhubarb crumble. More appropriate in a pub though, isn't it? I and mean, they're going to have that on tap, aren't they, rhubarb crumble? I mean, it, mm. it doesn't come out the tap. I mean, really? Jog, are you about, sure? That'd be amazing. jelly clogging the pipes, but rhubarb crumble is a nightmare. Um, I'd be more inclined to play a fruit machine these days if the prizes were what you saw on screen rather than a sort of unsatisfactory amount of cash. Love cherries. Yeah. I love cherries. If it spat cherries out at you, I'd be well up for it. Mm. I've never really understood the nudge thing, actually. I mean, we're mocking the fact that it added a level of skill, but actually, in all seriousness, that's the thing that I got caught. I mean, whenever I've tried a fruit machine, I thought it was just a randomised game of luck. And then I've realised, oh, shit, there's this button that says nudge. What does that mean? What does that do? Why do I have to press keep? What's that about? I mean, mm. most people don't ever learn that skill because it's sort of meaningless, isn't it? But it's but it's not because it's a skill. The other reason why they're in pubs, apart from that, they bring in lucrative returns. I mean, more than selling beer, sadly. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Whoa. Is that mm. um, because it's a fixed, you know, thirty percent return? Yeah. Um, mm. The other reason that they're there is, I mean, no one will ever tell you this officially, but it is kind of to introduce children to gambling. Really, like if you're sixteen, seventeen, going to the pub pretending to be eighteen or nineteen, have your first drink. You're going to want to play the, the fun fruit machine because that's what the grown-ups do as well. You can play it with your pocket money and then your brain starts getting trained into the sort of metrics that might lead you to playing roulette and spending more of your cash. I think there's a real um, delineation. I remember like, I used to, when I used to go swimming, I used to play video games, like uh, arcade machines. Yeah, yeah. And I remember people just being absolutely baffled that I would put money into a machine where I had no chance of winning money. Yeah. And me being absolutely baffled that you'd put money into a machine which wasn't remotely fun. I know, well, this is the thing. And I, I think there's like a divergence that happens maybe in people's minds at that age. I'm actually up for the gambling legislation to change so that it makes it harder to gamble sort of hardcore, serious amounts of money on something that's no fun, but actually would make it easier to gamble on video. Like, if you could play Super Mario and win money, that would be great, Yeah, that it? would be nice. Yeah. Like, you know, to a moderate level where I wasn't addicted, if I could win £10 by playing Pac-Man, that would be fucking great. This summer I'm getting wed to my sweetheart We've got the cake, the dress, the band It's Captain Beefheart And we'll both drive down the aisle In a pair of matching go-karts The photos will be epic We use squarespace.com to build our wedding website So our friends can RSVP and see our plans for the night And we'll link to our gift list We don't want any old shite Seriously guys, a hundred quid minimum Squarespace have bankrolled this episode for which we are very grateful. Oh, we love their money, but we also love their amazing website creation platform. Thank goodness for their drag and drop tools and their award-winning templates because then I can build a website without having to know how building websites work because my brain is full of other stuff. That's right. You can create your own store. 
like you did with Onto Me This Door. You can create your own gallery. You can put a podcast up there. Doesn't really matter. They make it so easy. You can have a go yourself. There's a two-week free trial, so you can mess around. Build the website you've always wanted to build, but were too afraid (laughs) before. And then remember, if you like what you see, if you're enjoying your free trial, you're thinking, this two weeks in many ways has been the best of my life. I want it to continue. (laughs) Then what you need to do is use our code to get 10% off a year's subscription. And that code is... Answer. This is Len in Spain. And I have a burning question that I'm hoping Helen and the rest of the crew can help me with. I would like to know if you can clear up for me the origin of the Caesar salad. I have heard what I think are misinformed opinions on the internet attributing it to Julius Caesar, but I think that isn't true. So hopefully you can clear it up for me. Oh, this is the bane of my life, this thing, because a few months ago, I made a quip about the Caesar salad on The Illusionist. Helen's other podcast, The Illusionist. The other one. Yeah. I had Roman Mars on. We were talking about eponyms. I'll just play the clip, all right? Okay. Last night, I was eating dinner with my kids and my wife, and we were talking about childbirth and mentioned the cesarean section, the way that these two babies, you know, my my twin boys came into this world. And it caused us to talk about Caesar and was Caesar really the first person to have (laughs) to be the result of a cesarean section? In which case, I, I have no actual knowledge of this, but I said, probably not. It's hard to imagine that the first person to be born through this procedure also became one of the most famous people in all of history. And invented and... one of the most famous salads. <laughs> I'm obviously joking there, right? That's obviously me just making a little quip, right? I think that is obviously a joke, and if you missed it, it's yes. signalled by the man that you're talking to Go. then clearly laughing. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. You just did a funny thing. No, a lot of people did miss it, because I got so many tweets where people were like, um, actually Actually, I think I find that the Caesar salad was invented by uh, Caesar Cardini in 1924. And I was like, ah, it's just post-truth. You don't get to do jokes anymore. We're post-jokes. That's so unfair. What am I supposed to do in a post-jokes world, Ollie? Okay, I understand your frustration. So so was this Caesar in 1924? Was he an emperor? (laughs) (laughs) Well, he presumably became a salad dressing empire owner, did he? Did well, he get to see the fruits of his labour? He was already doing pretty well. There's um, no fruit in a Caesar salad. That is true. Don't even dare put fruit in a Caesar salad. I saw one with strawberries on a menu. That is That's disgusting. appalling. Uh, no, Caesar Cardini, he was doing pretty well in 1924. He was an Italian guy who ran a restaurant in Tijuana. And in 1924, the restaurants in Tijuana were doing great because it was prohibition. So Americans would come over the border ah. to have a good night out. <laughs> to drink a lot of salad dressing. Yeah. So the story goes that there was a group of Hollywood people in Cesar Cardini's restaurant and uh, they were detained from leaving to go home by rain. And it was the 4th of July weekend, so he was pretty cleaned out of ingredients. He's like, fuck, what am I going to give him? And so he invented the salad where it was just uh, lettuce leaves and egg and um, a few other bits and pieces. No anchovies at the time. Some mm. dry bread. And it was meant to be a finger food, so he laid out whole romaine lettuce leaves on a plate. Oh, with, that's uh, odd. It is odd. I mean, nowadays it's so drenched in the dressing, yeah. typically, that you couldn't really eat it with your fingers. Yeah, no. Unless be, you wanted your fingers to smell of parmesan. Be diabolical. But I assume then you picked up the lettuce leaf and then nibbled the, the dressing-laced end. Mm. And he made it tableside, so it was theatrical. They like that in uh, Mexican border towns still. They like that. They in, do that with the guacamole for the American tourists. Oh, lovely. Yeah. They like that in posh American restaurants that sell 
Caesar salads even now. Like Do they? Steakhouses, yes. They make it for you in front of you. Yeah. But there's no Table mystery side. there. Like, we all know how the salad's made. You yeah. assume it's relatively fresh in a quality restaurant. But you're still supposed to be like, ooh. <laughs> it's, and also, it's not like Tom Cruise and cocktail, is it? <laughs> they're mixing the dressing in front of you. They're not just putting a bottled dressing onto some lettuce leaves, <laughs> to be fair. Look, it's Paul Newman. So allegedly, that is how it went down, and whether the Hollywood stars were really there or not um, is unknown. But there weren't anchovies in it then. Uh, his brother, Alex Cardini, is supposedly the one who added the anchovies a couple of years later and called it the Aviator, but the salad Ooh. came to be named after Caesar Cardini because I think he was a bit celeb And people came from far and wide to eat his salad. Wallace Simpson used to spend a lot of time in she loved a bit of Tawana celebrity Appar- salad fan Wallace Simpson who's Wallace Simpson was that the woman that the Mrs. king Simpson was- pinched our king yeah, yeah. when he was dicking the monarch apparently she met the Prince of Wales in Tawana over a Caesar and, salad and apparently it was because of Wallace Simpson that the Caesar salad became popularised in Europe and it's apparently because of Wallace Simpson that the Caesar salad is now chopped and covered in dressing because she did not do finger food on the one hand that sounds ridiculous but on the other hand when you talk about being popularised as a posh salad there has to be a reason that the Caesar became the go-to dish in upmarket chain hotel room service. Mm. Because it's always cheeseburger and Caesar salad, isn't it? Wherever you are in the world, any room service, cheeseburger and Caesar salad. Do you think that is a similar principle to why Caesar Cardini allegedly invented it in the first place? That he was pretty much out of supplies at the restaurant, so he had some romaine and he had some hard cheese. Romaine and hard cheese were the two options on the referendum, I believe. (laughs) Here is a question from Jonathan from Exeter. Who has not invented any salads of note. We don't know. Uh, Jonathan says, Ollie, answer me this. Do you remember when the internet was sometimes referred to as the information superhighway. I do, because it was only the 90s. I remember the 90s. Remember the Spice Girls? Remember (laughs) Nirvana? I think that is just a rhetorical introduction to Jonathan's real question. Oh, okay. Okay. Ollie, answer me this. Where did that phrase come from? Who was the first person to use it? Al Gore. Woo! That's good. That's a good one, Famous person came up with Mm. it. So, Al Gore came up with the phrase information superhighway in 1978. Yeah, in a speech he was giving about a proposed highway of cables, literally a a highway of cables to rival a giant motorway that they were planning to put in the ground between Boston, New York, Philadelphia and Washington, D.C. So they were planning in in government a 776-mile system of cables on the East Coast Mm. that would be used for information. But they didn't know know whether that would be cable TV or whether that would be... Exactly, yeah. It became applied to the internet after the World Wide Web became a thing. But the reason he called it the information superhighway mm-hmm. was in tribute to his dad, Al Gore Sr., who had spearheaded the legislation creating the interstate highway system. No. Quite good, isn't it? That's a better answer than I thought it would be. Much better. I thought it would just be like a made-up bullshit thing. Like, yeah, can't you know. trace it, original, no. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, but actually, like, specifically, famous politician you've heard of paying tribute to their own father for a thing that they've done that you've heard of. Hope you're happy, Jonathan from Exeter. Yeah, that's a good answer. Excellent service. <laughs> well done, Ollie. I'm an Anthemides fan I listen with my nan She is not so keen She finds it too obscene I follow them on Twitter Though Ashton Kutcher's fitter I want to take things further Just one step short of murder I want to look like Ollie Man I want to smell like Ollie Man I want to be like Ollie Man I want to chase like Ollie Man I want to look like Ollie Man I want to talk like Ollie Man 
Here's a question from Anna from London who says, Helen, answer me this. What does the Latin on the front of the British passport say? It's French. It says, Dieu est mon droit, and also, on y soit qui mal y pense. And is this kind of like the school motto of Britain? It's the royal coat of arms on the front of the passport. Uh, So, yes, in a way. It kind of is, yeah. If, If we all had to wear blazers, it would say that on it. Pretty much. Um, she says, does it appear anywhere else? But I have an obvious question before that, which is, what does it mean? Dieu et mon droit means God and my right. Oni soit qui mal y pense is the motto of the Order of the Garter, which means shame upon him who thinks evil of it. Okay. God and my right is probably the royal family going, put here by God, so fuck you, peasants. <laughs> and the Order of the Garter is like, and shame upon you as well if you think me telling you to fuck off peasants is bad. But interestingly... Uh, especially since, you know, either post-Brexit or pre-Brexit, depending on where you see us politically, people have been saying that uh, the British passport is the thing that we're reclaiming. It's not yeah. going to be a European Union passport, it's going to be a British passport. But they always say it'll still have the same thing on the front of it, and that's in French. French and passport is a French word. Yes, it is, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's quite funny. It's almost like there's lots of French words in the English language, isn't it? In English, there's not a lot that isn't from french or Mm. latin or the norse invasions or germanic invasions and if you go back before all of those things britain basically doesn't exist so yes the royal coat of arms does appear everywhere else that there is a royal coat of arms it's the same one you see on a jar of pilchards or whatever (laughs) yeah on on the royal pilchards yes it's it's the same one you see tattooed on the queen's bicep (laughs) here is another question of passports from lizzie from london who says I've been doing some long-haul travel recently, and while flying itself doesn't bother me, I do have one quite crippling fear. I'm terrified I'm going to drop my passport somewhere, for example, while going up the stairs into the plane, and only realising when I'm then denied entry into wherever I'm travelling to. That's a very specific concern. I get that, though. Air travel makes me more paranoid that I've got my belongings in the right place. Lizzie says, Ollie, answer me this. What would happen if someone... Lizzie were to do this lose their passport whilst in midair or on the stairs on the way up to the plane some sometime between going through the last security check at the outbound leg and at the arrivals well it depends where you're flying into obviously I'm sure Mm. the rules are different for you know Saudi Arabia or France Mm. Um, but I happen to know exactly what would happen if you did this en route to your grandson's wedding in Malaga oh god (laughs) fancy that this is exactly what happened to Grandma Terry when she was flying out for, for our wedding so i went to the airport to collect her yeah and i was nervous because she's i shouldn't say her age but she, it, it begins with an n um and you know she's I was, nine she yeah. <laughs> uh, and i was nervous i was thinking you know she's flying not by herself she's with her partner but he's in his 80s brian just you know i'm responsible for them yeah. flying out here for my wedding i want everything to be okay it's quite a big busy airport as well i even said this to my mate on the way to the airport to pick her up I said, if you were to ask me at this point, what's the worst thing that could happen? It'd be something happening, like to her, like if she collapsed on the plane or something mm-hmm. like that. That would ruin the whole wedding. That would be like, because it would yeah. be our fault that she was out there. Right. Um, and so we were waiting for her to arrive and everyone came in from the flight from Luton and she wasn't there. Mm. And I thought, okay, well, she's got special assistance because, um, you know, she doesn't need a wheelchair, but she does when she's at airports because they're big places. Maybe they're just a bit delayed. Waited another 20 minutes, nothing. She's cool. They probably just wanted to hang out with her for a while. <laughs> then I glanced down at my phone and there was a message there from her, a text mm. message. And the text message said, Oliver, I'm so devastated, Brian. That's what it said in the little ghost <laughs> bit that you read before you read the whole thing. So, like, actually then my mind was like, you know, has collapsed on the plane and is mm. dead was basically what I was worried about. Clicked open the message and actually I was relieved when I saw that it just said, 
Brian is looking everywhere for my passport and can't find it. Um, but basically, exactly what you described, Lizzie, uh, my grandma had somehow, uh, between Luton Airport and arriving in Malaga, lost her passport. So I was thinking then, shit, because she's in the country, mm. but it was Friday and we were getting married on the Monday in Gibraltar, for which you need your passport. Mm. You can't go from Spain to Gibraltar without your, your passport. So I thought even if she gets in this stage, she's not going to then get into Gibraltar. She'll be trapped in Spain. Yeah. And also she would have to leave Spain to go home at some point. Yes, exactly. So what happened kind of fortunately slash unfortunately is when she got to the ground staff there in Malaga, she was explaining the situation to them. They said, well, I'm sorry, you haven't got any ID, so we can't let you through. Mm -hmm. And she said, oh, I do actually have a photocopy. 15 years before, my grandfather had said to her, always keep a photocopy of your passport in your handbag. And she always had and never used it before. Good tip. But he'd said that. So she had a photocopy of her old passport, but that was enough to prove who she was to their satisfaction. Hmm. So they said, okay, well, we can see you are who you say you are. What you need to do is we'll let you through. And then how long are you here for? And she said, oh, I'm here for a week. Mm -hmm. She hadn't thought that she then needed Mm. to technically go to a different country the next day. I'm here for a week. They said, fine, just go to the British Embassy and get yourself a new passport whilst you're here. An emergency travel document. So she came out saying, oh, it's fine. I just need to get an emergency travel document. <laughs> and I was like, uh, you don't, because we need to go to Gibraltar for our wedding. And how did you get her an emergency travel document to get into Gibraltar? Because I'm assuming you did. I tried my best to be as charming as possible and explain that it was all in the interest of love. Oh. Um, went to the British Embassy. It was a bit like a Richard Curtis movie, yeah. but long and shit. It was a bit like the boat that rocked. <laughs> <laughs> I went to... Uh, I went to the British Embassy, which luckily, as it happens, is in Malaga. That's the British Embassy for right. the whole of the south of Spain. Whoa, like, cause... if this had been Ibiza, we would have to have got a boat to Malaga to go to the embassy. Oh, it just so happened to be near where we were. Um, went to the British Embassy. Probably because of the proximity to Gibraltar, right? Yeah, I guess so. And the mm. number of Brits in the area. Yeah. And of course, it's very common that a senior citizen mislays their passport and needs an emergency travel document. Or someone who's gone to southern Spain to go out on the lash. Um, but yeah, they were very understanding about that. But I had to explain the situation. And basically, they just made they just cheated the rules for us. They were really nice. Wow. So what you do is you pay 50 quid for an emergency travel document. That gets you back into the UK. But what we needed was a document that would get her into Gibraltar, out of Gibraltar, and then back to the UK before she applied for her passport. So they wrote one up that suggested that she was on a flight back to the UK a week later that somehow travelled via Gibraltar. Mm-hmm. So they wrote it down at this complete fictional journey as if she was catching a boat or a plane from Gibraltar and that's why she needed entrance and exit from it. So yeah, they did us a favour, basically. But it worked. So thanks, Embassy guys. My grandma was at my wedding because of you. Wow. Yeah. So Lizzie, the top tip is... Charm the Embassy. Do a bit of dithery English person. Carry the photocopy. I always have a photo of my passport uh, on my phone. I wonder if they'd accept that. I probably wouldn't. Well, it depends on the country and how frosty their border control is. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, Costa del Sol is just mm. sort of tourist, isn't it? Mm. I, I think if, yeah, if you were flying into a slightly more prickly place, they might be a little bit more wary. And with that, we've reached the end of our journey on episode 348. And uh, we've uh, stepped off the plane and arrived at our destination, <laughs> which is the sound of nothing when this podcast stops. <laughs> But who knows when this sentence will end. It might, it might go on for a couple more hours yet. Uh, but if you would like to have a question in a future edition of Answer Me This, then you know what you have to do. You have to email it or phone it. And all our contact details are on our website. Answermethispodcast.com uh, We have our own individual projects that you can listen to as well. The Modern Man is back for season four. 
Uh, oh, you have man. seasons. We have seasons. Oh, this is uh, this is spring 2017. <laughs> <laughs> and what are people wearing for spring um, in audio? They are wearing the usual mix, Helen, of sex trends and amazing life stories. That uh, sounds very becoming. Uh, so far this season, I've met a fashion icon and a man who raised $1 million in startup funding whilst he was still at university. Bloody oh, hell. and I've learned how to moisten an overly dry vagina. Uh, that oh. and more. <laughs> is in, it with Caesar salad dressing? It is, yes. Uh, in the current series of The Modern Man. Oh, uh, uh, modern great. Man with two ends.co.uk. The Illusionist is back as well. Doesn't have seasons, I just take January off. That's very wise. I it wish I could wise. just take January off from life. I really recommend taking January off, people. Just stay Go in, to bed in January. Stay in bed. Do not get out yeah, of bed in January. <laughs> um, and um, I've been doing stuff about romance novels and words for vagina that don't make you want to wow. curl up and die. Inside. So we've both got a vagina-themed section to our recent output. We have Martin, synergy. Are you uh, commenting on Tom Waits's uh, forgotten vagina. album, The Vagina? Um, no, we're talking about Heart Attack and Vine. It's um, implicitly vaginal, uh, which is which is his, uh, very, his very sort of bluesy R and B album uh, featuring. <laughs> doesn't sound very much like that at all. Uh, featuring Andy and Miranda Zaltzman. Yeah. Uh, this this uh, for the next few episodes. It's my sister-in-law's podcast debut. She's one of the only Zaltzmans never to have been on a podcast. <laughs> and you can find that at songbysongpodcast.com. Correct. Oh, uh, you can find The Illusionist at theillusionist.org. And uh, we built all those websites on Squarespace, thanks to Squarespace we did. for oh, Squarespace. this episode of Answer Me This. Yes, and if you would like to make a financial contribution to us, that's easy. Just go to paypal.me slash answer me this. We will be back on the first Thursday of April with a new episode, but we will be back in three weeks' time because it's a long month with the next retro episode of Answer Me This and our commentary thereupon. So join us for those. Bye! Bye.